Fear is an impulse designed to warn about potential danger, but why then do certain people seek out the feeling of being scared? People like skydivers or roller coaster lovers and horror movie buffs. On today's Please Explain, we will learn about the science of fear, why and how we experience it, and why some people think it's fun. And we are joined by Margie Kerr, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, a nationally recognized expert on professional haunted houses. Her book, Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear, is published by Public Affairs. I'm very pleased it has brought her to our show today. Hello. Hello. So good to be on. Thank you. And uh, if uh, members of our audience want to join the conversation, give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So, Margie, when you're not teaching, don't you work at Scare House in Pittsburgh, one of the most frightening haunted houses? I do, yes. <laughs> it's uh, not the most common side job for uh, professors, but it's been incredibly enlightening. But this is not a typical haunted house. You say it's not covered in blood and guts like the traditional kind. What's it like in there? Yeah, the uh, scare house does have a, a little bit of the of the the gore, but just a just a little bit. It's it's a more sort of creepy um, and. Uh, very sort of immersive experience. A lot of the sets are so highly designed that you can't help but get completely engaged in the environment. Uh, for example, the first haunted house within the scare house is all set in 1932, and all of the props, all of the um, designs, the artifacts, the wallpaper is authentic to that time period. So it's an incredibly immersive experience. You've said that the first time you visited it, you got so spooked, you ran into a wall and hurt your shoulder. I did, yes. What I, spooked you? I have never you? encountered characters like they have at Scarehouse. And you're a sociologist. Yes. Um, how did you become a consultant for Scarehouse? Well, I uh, was working on my dissertation. This was probably about eight years ago, and uh, I was just so sort of engrossed in all of my research and data for my dissertation, and I really wanted to, you know, get out of, of my house, get out of my head for a while, and I went to Scarehouse, because I, I love haunted houses and always have, and, uh, and I was talking to the owner and said, you know, this place is amazing. I just want to be here all the time, and, uh, and he said, well, what do you do? And I, I explained that I was a sociologist, and uh, it turned out that they had a lot of data uh, that needed to be analyzed. Um, they'd been collecting data from their customers for years, and they had basic descriptive uh, statistics, but nothing really that was looking at the more uh, qualitative uh, answers and the open-ended questions. So I came in and, and did that, and it really just took off in a completely new direction for me. So you can learn all sorts of things in a haunted house that you can't learn doing research in a lab? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's in the real world. It's it's still you know a false environment, a haunted house. You know, everything is fake, but uh, it does get you a little bit closer to people experiencing emotions uh, in in real life. You know, lab environments are so um, sterile, and they're constantly uh, you know under the the participants are constantly aware that they are in a research setting, and so this 
you know, really allowed me to see people reacting in real time to, you know, real stimuli. Um, and I felt just so lucky to be able to see those reactions uh, that really were so genuine. Now, I'm assuming fear is uh, an emotion like other kinds of emotions. Is it related to other emotions? Yeah, emotions really, you know, we what we call emotions, a lot of it is in the meaning-making that, that we give to whatever um, sort of physical experiences that we're having. So, you know, that's, that's why um, you can see people who scream, but then they immediately laugh. And it's because there's a, a similar arousal response happening in our body, and it's just that the context has changed or the meaning around it has changed. So, you know, the, the emotions really are, are the cognitive processing that we are doing to sort of make sense of what we're experiencing. So at a physiological level, we're going to see a lot of similarities between, you know, states of fear and states of, you know, excitement or, uh, or even uh, happiness or, you know, the basic kind of high arousal states all share these common components. Um, but the names that we give that experience can change based on whether we feel safe or we feel like we're in real danger. So the word thrilling is usually used as a positive. Yeah, and that's why well, I talk a lot about, you know, thrills and chills because the underlying um, response in the body is so similar. And it's, it's just the, uh, again, sort of what we are making of that moment. For example, on a roller coaster, we've got our, our threat response is, is happening too, um, but a lot of people don't think of that in the, you know, traditionally sort of, um, uh, sort of scary in the, the haunted sense. They think of it more as, as thrilling and, and positive, um, but it's the same sort of underlying response. You have spent a lot of time doing various scary activities, like spending a night in an abandoned prison, going on the steepest roller coaster in the world. Yeah. Um, one seems more psychologically scary, while the other seems to be more of a physical experience. Yeah. In, in my book, I separate out sort of the psychological um, you know, fear and the, the physical thrill, uh, because they are they, we we do give them different meaning, and you know when I when I spent the night at uh, Eastern State Penitentiary, um, that which is a historic site now, uh, it really takes you to a different type of fear, a fear you know that is more um, about you know real people and, and you know sort of the human capacity to um, to both you know hurt others and also what happens when we're sort of in states of isolation. So really taking fear into the mind and seeing how we can think ourselves into a state of physical fear. Didn't the NIH recently develop a document on fear and other emotions? They did. They developed a, a, a document to sort of guide research in emotions that outlined the difference between things like, you know, acute threat and, and what sort of the target, um, uh, you know, uh, study items would be, uh, and things like chronic stress and, you know, just general negative affect and trying to sort of bring some consistency because it is, you know, how people define fear can change so much based on time and place. And so researchers really want to have a common language when they say, okay, we're talking about, you know, the acute threat response. We're talking about, you know, what, what's happening in the body in that moment of, of startle versus, let's talk about what's happening in the body that's been under a chronic state of, of stress. 
you know, what's uh, changing, you know, over time versus in the moment. And I think that's really helping to separate, you know, what's happening in the body versus what um, sort of meaning people are giving to uh, to these experiences and, and just sort of trying to to make sure everybody's talking about the same thing as much as possible. I'm speaking with Margie Kent, uh, Margie Kerr, I'm sorry. Uh, her book, Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. Well, I would think that fear uh, mostly resides in the brain, but we have these physical responses like sweating, increased heart rate, sometimes even incontinence. Are they linked together? Is what happening in the brain then... Um, sending messages to other parts of the body? Yeah. Um, so when we're, when we're afraid, when we go into that threat response, uh, our brain is just trying to process as much information as possible. And we've got, you know, the emotional processing parts of our brain, the amygdala, the insula, the hippocampus, everything sort of trying to sound the alarm to get the body prepared to to fight or flee so it's triggering the release of all different types of hormones and neurotransmitters and while that's happening a lot of the sort of executive functioning the rational thinking the logical thought all of those messages are being put on the back burner um, because the the goal is is survival and uh, what you know, research has found is that really good kind of emotional regulation happens when the communication between the thinking part of our brain, so that executive functioning and the, the prefrontal cortex, when communication between that and this, you know, more emotional processing part of the brain is strong. So you've got your rational logic coming in and saying, you're on a roller coaster, you're fine, you're in a safe place, you know, you can um, sort of uh, stop sounding the alarms, we're, we're okay, uh, and it, you know, can result in, in more sort of regulation and, and not um, going into the complete, you know, panic mode where uh, you just have, have, you know, no concept of what's happening at all. But that, that does happen because, you know, when we're really terrified, um, the primary goal is to, to make sure our body is, is capable of, of getting out, getting away, uh, and surviving. From a biological standpoint, can a perceived threat be the same as a potential uh, um, harm that's actually there? Yeah, we can we can think ourselves into an extreme state of panic, and that you know we we see happen with um, things like PTSD or or really any any if you're just say for example sitting alone at home one night and you hear a, a bang outside and it's probably nothing probably you know just the wind but if your mind starts taking you to all of those places that uh, sort of tap into all of the horror movies that you've seen and all of a sudden you're imagining someone is outside your window and trying to get in, uh, we, can, we can work ourselves into a state where we believe that we are in you know, extreme uh, threat and danger. And, uh, and it's, it's an amazing you know, ability of the, of the human brain to, to do this, to, to basically, you know, um, using our imagination, get our, our body into such a state of high arousal. And this is something that is an evolutionary development. I don't know whether animals have similar kinds of, of dual responses, but um, I'd imagine that they do. Well, every, every species has a, a threat response, uh, you know, a, a sort of defense mechanism to make sure that they can uh, protect themselves when they're being threatened. Um, in terms of the, the processing that's happening uh, that's a, a little less 
less clear and much more difficult to study what, what kind of meaning they're they're bringing to their their physical experiences. My guest is Margie Kerr, who is a sociologist. Uh, uh, she teaches at the University of Pittsburgh. She's also a nationally recognized expert in professional haunted houses and works year-round at the Scarehouse Haunted House, analyzing data on customers and employees uh, to make its attractions even scarier. Uh, well, she's written a book called Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. It is published by Public Affairs. And we will continue our conversation if we take a little break. We invite your calls here. Our number is 212-433-9692. I, I assume that a fair number of our listeners like the idea of uh, going, being scared, going to horror movies or going on a roller coaster or putting themselves in some other kind of a, a even if it's a safe, but a, a sense of dangerous situation. And then others just hate the idea and would never do any such thing. Uh, 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMIC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. We're back with Margie Kerr. Her book, Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. It's published by Public Affairs. Um, you cite a study in your book from the University of Virginia that found that most people would rather be doing something bad like intentionally shocking themselves than sitting alone with their thoughts. Um, yes. <laughs> that, that struck me as, uh, as odd, um, although I have heard that uh, in the early days of treatment of autis autistic children, um, a, a, a Skinner-type doctor would... Um, give a little electric shocks to the autistic kids who weren't doing what he wanted them to do. And then they discovered that the kids were actually not doing things on purpose because they were stimulated by the shocks. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know that there are researchers following up on that uh, study and, and looking at it more to try and figure out exactly, you know, why, why we're doing this. At, at first, you know, we we like to explore novel things, and so we're going to be curious to see, oh, what, do, what does this feel like, and, and try it. But the fact that we then continue to, to do it is, you know, very fascinating and uh, suggests that we are gaining something from it. Um, and, you know, the physical response or, or activating sort of physical sensation is a, a really great way to distract yourself from what's happening in your brain. You know, we're in the terms of hierarchy of, uh, of attention. We're going to pay attention to what's happening to our, our body um, first. And so it could be potentially very therapeutic in a way if, if you're, you know, um, using sort of a external stimulation to sort of reset whatever you're thinking about. In fact, uh, Greg Siegel at the University of Pittsburgh, he's looking at how that could, you know, potentially be beneficial to use, you know, physical stimulation through very mild electric, electric shock to sort of um, take people out of, of negative rumination cycles of, of thinking sort of these continuously um, kind of negative uh, uh, thought patterns. Um, but it is, it is interesting that we, you know, <laughs> that, that just everyday people would rather shock themselves than sit alone with their thoughts. Wow. Uh, one listener wonders whether you make a distinction between fear and terror. Is, is uh, there a difference? And what I, is it? 
I don't know that there's, I think that the difference is largely going to be subjective, you know, for, for people who are creating their own, um, I guess, range of, of fear. Uh, you know, if they, they say go from, you know, thrilling to scary to fearful to, to terrifying, that's going to be a very subjective kind of um, uh, range. In terms of looking at it physiologically, you know, there that could depend on, you know, uh, the individual too and what their normal rates of different types of uh, hormones or, um, you know, just I don't think that it, the difference is going to be, you know, meaningful in terms of, of you know, research. Let's take some calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. Edward from Queens, you're on the air. Yeah, good afternoon. How you doing? Okay. What's your question? Oh, basically, I had a question for the guest. Is it you? Hear, you know, you hear the term, or, or I've heard the term, a person is fearless, or man without fear, something like that. Is it actually physiologically possible to have someone born without that fear response, or train yourself to not react to uh, have a physiological or emotional response to fear? I well, mean, let, is that just a saying, or is that possible? Well, let me add to this. Uh, you write that 100% of people experience height-related physical symptoms, and yet not everybody's afraid of, of height. And, and tightrope walkers, um, like somebody like Philippe Petit, he walked a tightrope across the, uh, the, the tops of the World Trade Towers when they still existed. Um, so was he fearless? Well, you know, there there's a famous uh, research uh, participant that was just referred to as SM who had amygdala a damage um, in her amygdala who, you know, was essentially fearless in a way because uh, you know, that that you know, part of her her brain was not was not working, you know, to alert her to, you know, situations things that would be um, scary, but the idea of sort of training ourselves to become fearless, you know, we, we absolutely can bring a lot of emotional regulation to our, our fear response. And definitely people who, you know, are doing these um, incredibly, you know, dangerous things like high rope, uh, tight rope walking uh, are exerting a, a tremendous amount of regulation to be able to, to do that. So you can train yourself and yes. sort of increase that communication between, you know, your thinking brain and your um, your sort of emotional response. Uh, and But the, the things like um, the, the height, um, mentioning that, you know, 100 people, 100% of people will experience height-related symptoms is just a, a matter of what our body is physically able to tolerate. So we may not be afraid of it, but our body is definitely going to have uh, a response to being so far up in the, in the air or, you know, um, hundreds of feet underwater. Uh, there are some things that our body just can't tolerate, and so we'll, you know, go into a, a kind of... Um, a threat response or physiological response, but I'm assuming if a time, lion is about to pounce on us, for example, yeah, and you know the the uh, that automatic response to to prepare is what has kept us alive for for years and years, well, forever. And um, the benefits, though, of learning about your own fear response and being able to bring a control to it is extremely beneficial because then it does allow us to quickly assess a situation and make good decisions um, by, you know, bringing in that 
rational thinking and saying, okay, this is a real threat, this is how I should respond, or, you know, okay, this is not something I need to be so worried about and sort of move on. Let's take a call from Jean Marie from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Leonard. Thank you so much for having me. Actually, it's interesting because making this call um, certainly elicits a little fear response in me, but I was calling because I was thinking about the proximity between fear and um, irritation. Because my, my personal experience, I'm, I'm, I become hyper-rational when I'm in actually dangerous situations, and I, I've, I've been in quite a few. Um, like such as? Well, such as I, I was in Iraq making a film about um, the history and sociology of, of Mesopotamian cuisine. And I, I ended up being you know, completely alone. I went to without any security. And so I was in a lot of areas where they hadn't seen anybody, any Westerners, for five years. And that was fine, but I had a few um, situations there where I, I thought that my... I was just traveling with civilians all the time, and I was clearly in areas I shouldn't be in. But I become very hyper-rational, and I was in Syria once, and I was arrested for filming, and, and I was just able to completely... Um, have have a, a very decent rational conversation with the minister where, where I was arrested, and um, I end up getting their protection. So I, I handle real fear and a really scary situations in a hyper rational way. But I always say I, I feel more calm being chased by a Mossad agent than I do getting on the phone with Verizon. Uh huh. What about going to a horror film? I, I hate horror films. Mm. I, I, I loathe and despise them. So we pick and choose. Is that uh, how we work, Margie? Yeah, and you know that's an amazing skill that you have, and that's I think something that you know many most people would probably really love to be able to do, to to be able to essentially you know, say, okay, the, the, the thing that I need the most right now is my mind in this situation. You know, so many of the threats throughout our, um, you know, history have been to our, our, our physical body from, you know, predators or things like that. But in many of the big, um, you know, scary situations today, it is our minds that we need to, to have ready to go. So that is a, a great skill to have. And, you know, we can, um, once we sort of do bring such an awareness to what we're afraid of and how we respond, you know, choose which to engage with, which to uh, sort of allow our suspension of disbelief. So, for example, if you, you know, want to be scared going into a haunted house to say, okay, I'm, I know this is fake, but I'm going to go ahead and, and allow myself to, to be scared, um, you can do that. You know, you can make that, that sort of choice to, to engage or not. Uh, and, and that is something I see a lot, you know, at watching people go through haunted houses, those who come up and say, oh, I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to, you know, let anything touch me. And, and they sort of steel themselves even against the, the startles. And it is sort of, a, um, you know, a, a skill that we can develop. And in that context, it always makes me sad because then they're missing out on the, the fun of it if they enjoy it. But uh, for those who really don't like that that feeling the sensation or the content then being able to say i just don't want to engage uh can you know also be you know really helpful and and then typically people will avoid things like scary movies and and haunted houses michael from teaneck new jersey hi you're on the air yes hi thanks for taking the call 
Um, I'm just wondering, is one's affinity uh, or affinity for or aversion to horror movies and frightening things in general a good indicator of maybe their overall bravery? And then would that correlate to maybe what jobs they seek or be good at? Uh, cop, firefighter, that sort of thing. That's all. That's what I was wondering. So do you find that cops love horror, well, love going into the haunted house? Um, you know, I I have not collected employment data on on participants or, or customers, but now I, I really want to. These are the kind of questions that I would love to to have a lot of data on because I think it is really interesting. You know, if we do find that there are um, correlations between engagement with voluntary engagement with scary material and things like employment or things like um, you know sort of bravery or courage, and a lot of it is going to come down to sort of the measurements that we use. How do we measure it? And right now there are many scales that look at things like sensation seeking or need for affect or um, sort of the, uh, the, the thrill seekers to try and, and assess that. And then, you know, we also, I, there isn't much data then connecting that to um, where what's happening with the rest of the life of, of, of people who are sort of fitting a, a certain profile to see how it's affecting um, their self-esteem. And that's actually part of the study that I'm working on right now is, you know, administering both the need for affect and sensation seeking, and then also asking questions about sort of how they feel about themselves and, um, you know, how they feel about themselves before and after doing something scary to see how it's impacting their overall sense of well-being and, you know, potentially is this, you know, helping them build a sense of resilience, a, a sense of, of confidence in themselves. Jack from Queens, how you're on the air. Hi, I was wondering if you had any comment about phobias, which certainly are fear-inducing generally over something that other people would find totally innocuous. Yeah, phobias are, you know, we, we can condition ourselves or be conditioned to develop a phobia of, of practically anything. Um, you know, many times it just takes one negative experience with something to, you know, solidify that as a, a scary thing in our mind and then take into the pathological uh, sort of extreme, it becomes a, a phobia. And uh, there are many methods now that uh, psychologists can use, therapists can use to do a uh, desensitization so that you can overcome your phobia. And um, there, uh, there are, there's definitely interventions out there now that, that are effective and can work. I have a friend who um, screams every time she sees a snake in a movie and she believes it's uh, some something genetic in her that uh, some people just have a gene to protect themselves against those kinds of dangerous situations. Yeah, there's been some research on that. There's actually a, um, a, a theory called snake detection theory that uh, is trying to, you know, study whether or not this is a, a sort of hardwired fear. And I, uh, I don't believe that they are quite there yet. Um, you know, snakes are, are inherently kind of unsettling because they're so unpredictable and, and they can move rapidly, and so they have a lot of characteristics that can scare us. Um, but in terms of having sort of a, a gene for, for snakes or, or sort of being hardwired for it, um, I, the, as, as recently as I've read, they haven't yet found that, uh, that gene. <laughs> a listener, Brian, writes, does the experience of fear vary in different cultures and demographics? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, what we fear uh, changes based on time and place. You know, the, the 
monster as metaphor is a great sort of example of this. You can see each culture is going to have their dominant monsters that largely re reflect what's happening in that society and in a time and place. Uh, for example... You write about uh, Japan in your book yeah. a lot. Yeah, in Japan, many of the most popular uh, scary stories revolve around ghosts and really focus on the afterlife and the um, uh, powerful uh, ghosts that can come in and really destroy lives. And it's very much linked to a lot of the culture and tradition and the uh, religion, and um, that's, you know, then reflected in, in the stories that we tell. Uh, similarly, when I was in, in Bogota, um, you know, a lot of the stories were uh, also about ghosts, but the ghosts were actually representations of, you know, evil drug lords or dictators or, you know, paramilitary groups, and using the ghost stories was really a way of sort of sharing what was happening in real life. Um, so, you know, what we are afraid of is, is going to be a reflection of, of what's happening in society. And that's really, there have been many books written sort of tracing American, um, you know, history through the uh, monster tales. And you can kind of see what our fears are, are, um, are reflecting, whether it's, you know, fear of uh, technology in the form of lots of robot movies, or if it's fear of, you know, uh, alien invaders as we, you know, uh, embark upon space exploration. It's, you know, we, we can turn our fears into monsters and fight them on screen and, and feel triumphant. Do we know why so many children fear the monster under the bed or in the closet? Uh, well, you know, children's imaginations you know, are just going wild. They're, they're experiencing so many things for the first time and uh, just imagining just everything. The world is, is a big unknown. And so, you know, to imagine that there could be these, these creatures is, uh, is sort of a, a natural part of that coming to understand the world and, and everything around you. And, and also a lot of times for kids, you know, when they're in bed alone, that's often their first experience of being by themselves. You know, throughout the day, they're probably with a parent or at school, but at night, they're getting that sense for the first time, wow, I'm, I'm alone, I'm by myself. Uh, and so it creates a real feeling of vulnerability. Margie Kerr. Uh, is a sociologist teaching at the University of Pittsburgh. She's also an expert on fear and haunted houses and related matters. She's been featured on Science Friday and uh, in various publications. Now she's written a book called Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. It's published by Public Affairs. Margie, thank you so much for participating in today's Please Explain segment. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.